Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of our special two-part episode with foreign policy guru, nuclear strategy savant, top shelf Putinologist and expert on all things Russia, longtime U.S. Naval War College poobah and author Tom Nichols. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast, you really, really ought to hit pause right now on this part two and go back and do that now, which is to say listen to part one so that you can hear Tom and I discuss Ukraine's remarkable resistance, Zelensky's tour de force performance on the world stage last week and his genius for navigating a postmodern media landscape that's not quite as treacherous as what he's facing in the bunker, but still pretty damn forbidding. The miscalculations and manias of Vladimir Putin and how he's become the John Gotti of superpower politics. And then the highlights of Tom's career and the lowlights of his playlist. Today, however, we have a whole different agenda. We're going to be talking about Joe Biden, his leadership of the Western Alliance, the rejuvenation of NATO, the possibility that Putin might turn to chemical or even nuclear weapons, and whether we are on the brink of World War III, or maybe, just maybe, we are already in it, but just haven't realized it yet. Tom, thank God, doesn't think that's true, but he admits that he could be wrong, that we may just think we're lazily floating downstream on a sunny spring day, when in fact we're about to go around a bend and run smack into a hell in high water. So, Tom, the one topic that we haven't gotten to yet in terms of like the three big dramatis personae on the world stage right now in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we've talked about Putin, we've talked about Zelensky, but we haven't talked about Joe Biden yet. And obviously, he's a, a very big player as the leader of the Western Alliance, the guy who's holding it all together in a lot of ways with NATO. So I want to do that now uh, and we we'll spend some time on it. Let's take a listen to some sound from last week, the same day that Zelensky gave his big speech to Congress. This was Biden. He was always planning to give a speech kind of in response to Zelensky. He said some things and then uh, he got asked a question by a reporter on a rope line. So let's listen to a little of that speech and then what happened unprompted, unrehearsed, unscripted on the rope line. Together with our allies and partners, we will keep up the pressure on Putin's crumbling economy, isolating him on the global stage. That's our goal. Make Putin pay the price, weaken his position while strengthening the hand of the Ukrainians on the battlefield and at the negotiating table. Mr. President, after everything we've seen, are you ready to call Putin a war criminal? I think he is a war criminal. So here's Joe Biden, leader of the West, ostensibly, and, and I think probably you and I agree, in fact, in this crisis, but I want to hear your views about it. The speech was a carefully calibrated speech in which he was basically doing what he's trying to do, which is essentially say, we're on the side of the Ukrainians. We want to help Zelensky. We want to help those people. We want to beat back Vladimir Putin. But... We also want to be the adult in the room and we do not want to spark World War III. And then, you know, being Joe Biden, he gets asked a question on a rope line and he's like, oh, of course he's a war criminal. <laughs> the only thing he got coverage for that day. I don't know yeah. how much that matters. But do you think it's in any way consequential that he said it? And then more broadly, what's your assessment of how Biden has done through this entire crisis? And he doubled down on it later because somebody said, you yeah. know, is he a thug? He's a murderer. And Biden's like, yeah, yeah. of course he is. Yeah. You know, I've kind of wrestled with that a little bit because I think Biden really was made for this moment. I think he's doing a great job. I think he's making the right decisions. And that was a classic Biden being Biden moment, right? The guy has no inner monologue about some of these things. Right. But on the other hand, I think what Putin's done is a point of no return with the rest of the world. Like there was once a time where you'd say, listen, don't call the guy a war criminal. You're going to have to talk to him about some stuff. We'll figure this out. You know, we'll muddle through the way American foreign policy always does. I think Biden just said out loud the truth that it's almost going to be impossible to unwind this 
unless something dramatic happens that either Putin is willing to make a deal or he leaves power or whatever it is that happens. And by the way, what Biden said was not nearly as stupid as what Lindsey Graham said, you know, which was uh, the dumbest I, goddamn thing I've ever seen. I want to be just really clear. My point is not that he was stupid. And it, I think it it's self-evidently it's self-evidently true. Right. He stepped on his own. Right. He's got a bunch of people who are saying, be careful. Right. Was it something you want to say when you're you're trying to unravel this problem? Yeah. Because my first reaction was to say, oh, you know, my old Cold War instincts, right? No, you still got to remember, you got to meet the guy and go yeah. to a summit and all that stuff. Right. On the other hand, I'm trying to think of what happens if Joe Biden is at, you know, Vienna or something, shaking hands with Vladimir Putin after all this. Is that really possible? Right. And I think for, you know, it's not. I mean, it's hard just, to imagine. You know, it's very hard to imagine. And I think in this sense, you wanted to stay out of trouble earlier comparing Zelensky to Trump. I want to stay out of trouble comparing Biden to Reagan, hmm. who I think gave great speeches in the early 80s. But if you remember, the first thing Reagan ever said got him into trouble when he said, you know, what do you think of the Soviet leaders? Oh, they'll lie, they cheat, they steal, they'll do anything, they're monsters, you know, and people freaked out about dealing with Reagan. And the the reaction among the cognoscenti of that day was the Soviets are going to make Reagan pay for this and we're never going to get past it. And yet somehow we did. I don't know how Putin gets past this. And I'm not sure that it was that big a deal right. for Biden to say it all because Putin's proving it every day now. It's like, oh, right. you know, we're, like we're you and I are talking about Biden saying he's a war criminal. That news cycle has already passed because yes. we're talking about Biden bombing a theater in Mariupol that says children on it. I think you mean Putin bombing. You said pa Biden Putin bombing. I'm pardon yeah, me. Sorry. It's all right. I want to make sure there, there was the yes. Biden bombing in Mariupol. I agree with that. Look, any morally sensate person with a pair of eyes that function better than your ears do when it comes to music is looking at what's happening on television every day and saying these are war crimes. They're like, like I don't even care what the legal definition is. You know, bombing hospitals and and civilians indiscriminately. You know, if that's not a war crime, there is no war crime, right? Right. Just in a way that you might have been able to finesse in earlier go-arounds with Putin, where you could say, yeah, Georgia, mistakes were made, Aleppo, you know, the Syrians and the Russians, but, you know, yeah. this is in the heart of Europe, and they are intentionally committing atrocities yeah, totally. on a daily basis. So on that, I'll, I think it's different. I think it is qualitatively I, different. Although I would say that some of the weapons that were used in Aleppo and Grozny are like, are like I think oh, also clear, should be definitely war crimes also. Yes, but you could have um, convinced yourself to say, yes. I'm not going to say it for the sake of bigger fish to fry here. Right. So, so here's, so I, so I think it's, it's, it's noise, not signal is the Biden thing. It got a lot of attention and it showed again, Biden's Biden. He can't see on message. Okay. Fair enough. I just want to be, to see this through a skeptical eye, which is Biden and the administration got a lot of credit in the build up to the war by publicizing all the, the Intel and basically saying, we're going to strip them of the ability, them, the Russians, the ability of making any kind of false claims about provocations. We're just going to publish everything we know. This is a new way we're going to do this. We learned from 2014. We're doing it different. And he gets a lot of praise for holding the alliance together. I said, you know, the other day that I think that NATO is maybe more important than it's been, you know, in at least 30, 30 years, 35 years, it yeah. reasserted itself in this profound way. Everyone in Europe wants to get in formerly neutral countries who never wanted to be in a military alliance before. Like I need that NATO membership card. Let yeah, me in there. I said a couple of weeks you know, ago, if Putin keeps up this way, polar bears are going to be in NATO. hundred percent. So, you know, he gets a lot of credit for all that. And yet there is a question, which is all the stuff we did we, the Americans, and we, NATO, did to try to deter Putin from invading. Did not work. He invaded. And so far, all the stuff we've done in terms of sanctions and all the other things that we talked about before have not gotten him to stop indiscriminately bombing Ukraine. 
And again, I don't mean to say that I think that obviously means that it's wrong to say that Biden's done a good job. What I mean is to ask the question, like, what's the metric by which we judge the leadership of an alliance? It's a defensive alliance, but you would have thought, and, and Ukraine's not part of it, but what would have been a clear success is if Putin pulled up short and didn't invade, even though he was planning to. And what would have been an equally clear success is if he hightailed it out of there soon. Neither one of those things happened, and neither one of those as much was prospected that happening anytime soon. So like, how do we judge it? Well, I'm not saying this because I have any particular brief for Biden. I'm going to say this as dispassionately as I can, that the three things I would judge Biden on. First, he inherited a bad situation. He was dealt a bad hand. This was going to happen, I think, if it didn't happen in Trump's second term, it was going to happen in whoever followed on Trump, that Putin had just settled on this a lot earlier than even last year, and he's been prepping the ground for it. If you're going to talk about that this became Biden's kind of Kobayashi Maru test, right? His no-win scenario. You have to put a lot of that burden back on Donald Trump and, I'm sorry to say, on Barack Obama for reactions even earlier. And George W. Bush, for that matter, you know, looking into his soul and all that. So that's one, is that Biden just got dealt a bad hand. Another metric here is seeing it coming, doing what we could to prepare the Ukrainians. The fact that Putin didn't achieve anything he tried to achieve in that first week is not just because of gigantic intelligence failures in Moscow, although it is, but also because of groundwork we've been doing with the Ukrainians for a long time. I mean, the Russians kind of dashing themselves on the rocks of, on the hills of Kiev, and also apparently, and this is just breaking news, saw a report that said the Russians may be giving up on assaulting Odessa, which would be really something. Huge. If that's true. If true, right? That's one of the Huge. If true. If true. true. Stipulate. Can't vouch for it. The third thing I'd say is if you're the head of a defensive alliance and a major war is raging and your alliance has not been attacked and your alliance is still intact and doing very active things, that's pretty good. There have been times in the past where we have had to plead with NATO to do far less with a lot more energy. People thought it was amazing that Bill Clinton, and I give Clinton all the credit for this, you know, got 19 NATO nations back then to agree to do the Kosovo operation. That was a hard thing to get done, but Kosovo compared to this was like minuscule risk. Poor Gerald Ford had to go to Brussels in 1975 and plead with the Alliance to stay together after Vietnam when you had guys like Callahan, the British prime minister saying, well, my job is basically to help manage decline and you know the end of NATO and all of that stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, for this war to be raging and you have 30 countries from Greece and Turkey all the way out to the newer members and Poland under direct threat to keep that together and so far to have protected your Alliance from further Russian attack, that's not nothing. Yes. That's considerable achievement. Now, if it turns to war tomorrow and NATO has to fight, then we'll see what kind of a wartime president Joe Biden really is leading a coalition. I don't think that's what the Russians I think some Russians don't want that. I've gotten a lot of heat for a piece I wrote recently where I said I think Putin would rather lose to NATO if he has to lose it all and that he wants to kind of draw NATO into this in some way to prove that he can kind of split NATO and get everybody's attention off the war crimes. But I think, you know, so far, the Americans have put Putin in a lot of bad situations. And revealing that intelligence that you just mentioned a second ago, that's a big deal. As Joe Biden himself would say, John's a big fucking deal. I like to like it when the point I guess use profanity, like because I like to well, use Joe, it so much. The president said it, so I think. I ah, can... oh, now you feel okay about something. Okay, look, there's a number of factors that brought NATO together in the way they brought it together. Putin's obviously a big factor. Biden's helped the alliance come together. There's so that's one thing to do. Alliance is incredibly united abroad, and Joe Biden's in terms of what he's tried to get done 
sanctions, arms, all the stuff, you know, looks like he's done a pretty good job. Now, there's one set of people, even though there's all this bipartisan support now for Zelensky and for broadly for Biden, you know, the Republican Party more or less come around. There is this other undercurrent. McConnell, after praising Zelensky the other day, kind of trashed Biden and was kind of like, you know, went through a whole laundry list of things that he thought Biden should have done more of. And then on Face the Nation on the Sunday, he you know, basically said, we are making a mistake. The Biden administration has dragged its feet and has not done enough on a number of fronts. But right now, what it's not doing enough on is sharing the assumption that the Ukrainians can win and doing everything possible to make it possible for them to do that. We can't have a no-fly zone, but we can help them as they want to close the skies through the MiGs, the jets, or the, the surface air missiles, the drone technology, whatever. Just like, give me everything they want. That seems to be the Republican. I believe McConnell said... He's done a pretty good job, but here, let me go to this thing. There is on the right, at least, among Republicans who have awkwardly come to the notion that in wartime, you have to be with Joe Biden and he's doing a pretty decent job, that this is the thing they've seized on. So I ask you, A, do you think it's fair that they should be doing more, could be doing more? Is that a fair criticism that they haven't done enough? And is it the right prescription for what we should do now? I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's good faith because I think the dilemma for the elected Republicans is that they realize that the hearts of most rank-and-file Republicans are now kind of with the Ukrainians and against the Russians. And I think it's Charlie Sykes who calls it the entertainment wing of the GOP, which is still, you know, Zelensky's bad. And, you know, so they're trying to thread this weird needle of saying, okay, fine, Biden's doing okay, but I have to find something to piss on. We went from, we shouldn't get involved in these crazy foreign adventures to Biden's not doing enough to get us more involved in these crazy foreign adventures. With that said, could we do more? It bothers me when people say, okay, fine, we can't do a no-fly zone, but let's kind of do one. Because these are very indeterminate, let's do a partial no-fly zone, whatever the hell that is. I love that one. Let's do partial no-fly zone and just kind of draw this line in the sky and the Russians will just respect it. We've tried, for example, I think, again, just today, did the Turks say they're not going to provide the s 400s. You know, we've tried. We're we're reaching out and saying, look, you know, what can our allies provide? And that's a difficult question because a lot of that has to be Soviet era or Soviet designed equipment. The mix thing in particular, which people I think kind of jumped on Biden about, the problem with the MiGs thing was that we talked about it too much and it became an issue. Right. If you were going to transfer the MiGs, do it quietly, get them there somehow. And then once they're flying, say, well, you know, there they are. Instead, it was, well, let's do it here. And maybe if we go to Ramstein and then we'll transfer them. First rule of covert operations club is you don't talk about covert operations. Because it's like fight club. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's like fight club. First yeah. rule of this kind of thing is you don't talk about this kind of thing. Right. And you certainly don't talk it to death, which I do think there is sometimes a tendency to do. I think the Biden administration understanding how explosively dangerous this situation is, has the tendency of the wonky Washington blob to, you know, we're going to turn the knobs to a 10th of a degree because the Russians will understand that this knob goes to 11, but we're going to turn it to 10 for now. Yeah, you know, right. so maybe that's a mistake. It may be that the Russians don't care about that. On the other hand, it's good that we've done things like establish a deconfliction channel with the Russians. It's good that we still have contacts at lower levels below the principles. Um, it's good that we're leaving some stuff that we can take off the Russian agenda for coming after us about, uh, I was talking about a friend with this on social media, he's like, well, why shouldn't we just do an air campaign if they're going to blame us for it anyway? And I'm like, you don't have to give them the actual material right. 
to do that because even Putin realizes there is a limit to lying, that he can't say things that his own people, they can finesse a lot. They can kind of buy that we've always been at war with East Asia kind of stuff, but they're not just going to believe things at least many of them won't believe things that have absolutely no basic. The, the fact that he's still trying to double down on Nazis yes, right. tells you that he kind of gets it. The people in Russia are going, yeah, no, that's not really what you're doing. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Tom Nichols on Hell and High Water. So you think of yourself as a recount super fan? You're a big news buff. You wake up every day with our daily newsletter or your gorge on our Twitter feed. Either way, we've got a new show just for you. Premiering Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. on Twitch, recount.co slash Twitch. The show is called Chatterbrain, the news game show. It's a show that will test three contestants on their knowledge of current events and other trivia. One winning contestant will take on the wisdom of crowds, the Twitch chat room in the final round. Host Slade Sommer, the Recounts Editor-in-Chief, picks the topics from the Recounts treasure trove of stories and insights to create this first-of-its-kind news game show. So get reading. Then you'll laugh, you'll cheer, you'll catch up on the news. doesn't matter if you get a question wrong. You will definitely learn something, and that's what it's all about. Tune in to Chatterbrain on Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. ET. To flaunt your news knowledge, find us on Twitch at recount.co backslash twitch. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I gave you the McConnell critique, and there are some Democrats who even share that and think that the arms efforts is, even though we keep spending more money, there's a lot of arms going across the border from NATO countries. Some of them we see, a lot of it we don't. There's some of it's bad faith. I agree with you. There are others who are Democrats who I think, and, and some Republicans maybe, who are just genuinely think like, gosh, we should be doing more and you know, whatever. That's a reason. It's not a totally unreasonable posture. There is one posture, it seems to me, that is alive and well and kicking and making a lot of noise in our political discourse. I don't know if it's bad faith is the right way to put it, but it's gotten a lot of attention and we got to ask about it, which is the crazy pro-Putin right. And let's note first, in that moment right before the war, when Trump was praising Putin and Pompeo was praising Putin and J.D. Vance and other people, it looked like it was going to be a bigger deal, you know? And a lot of them, maybe at least, maybe only tactically and maybe insincerely and maybe just to save their own hide, suddenly got the picture that, man, we can't be on Putin's side, at least not publicly, at least not now. I don't know what that'll turn into. What happened then was Tucker Carlson remained and a few other people. I play the Tucker Carlson sound now simply for the purpose of being able to comment on this matter. Last night, we told you that the Biden administration is funding a number of secretive biolabs in Ukraine labs that are conducting experiments on highly dangerous pathogens. Now, that's not a story, as we told you, that we wanted to do. In fact, we didn't think it could be true. It's so over the top and bizarre. And in any case, the administration had repeatedly and very aggressively denied that they were doing anything like this. And then they attacked anyone who asked questions about it as a tool of Russia. Once again, not for the first time, what had seemed like a nutty conspiracy theory turned out to be true. You know, it's straight up Russian disinformation. Well, and- it's not, I was thinking about this when you kind of went through the kind of rogues gallery people were talking about here. Yeah. What unites all of these people, it seems to me, is that they have become so partisan, not just that they're hyper-partisan, but that they're fundamentally unserious. A serious person knows that there comes a time to not talk, not spread Russian disinformation or talk about what a great guy Putin is. But for these 
chumps and opportunists, it's like, well, I'm just in the business of lib owning and nothing I say could really have any serious consequence in the world because nothing has any consequences in the world. You know, all that matters is winning elections and getting the job and being on TV. I mean, every time I hear Tucker Carlson, I always think of David Frum's point about him. He says, look, Tucker Carlson likes money and he likes being on TV and that the rest of it is just kind of servicing these goals. I think all of them are just about the business of saying, I am here to kind of like be the high school debate bully that can always win against these other guys because someone will break up this fight. Nothing is really serious. Right. My support of Putin won't get, you know, millions of people killed. You asked me earlier about something that, you know, in the book where I blamed kind of both sides and a bipartisan problem. I think this lack of seriousness is going to get us all killed. But I think the people on the right who have become this kind of pro-Putin wing of the GOP, there really is a tremendous lack of seriousness, a lack of thinking about consequences in it that I find just uh, appalling. At some point, you just want to turn to these people and say, isn't there enough money in the world? Are you right, so empty of spirit that you have to do this now for this one last time? You know, Trump rated, you know, people want to watch Donald Trump on TV. A lot of people did. You know, I didn't particularly, but a lot of people did. And I understood Trump was good for business for Tucker Carlson and for Sean Hannity and for Laura Ingram and for Sinclair Broadcasting and for Newsmax and for, you know, yada, yada, yada. Putin's not good for business. No. In terms of ratings, he's not. Putin doesn't rate. You know, right now. Or conspiracy theories are. Well, I guess that gets to come out of my question, which is, you know, you're Tucker Carlson. And if all you care about is making money and being influential and ha having a voice, it just seems like the idea that like you're going to be pro Vladimir Putin, who right now is pretty fucking unpopular in America across the political spectrum. Unless you're talking about batshit crazy conspiracy theories. I think somebody like Laura Ingram is just a fundamentally bad. I think these are all bad people, but I think sometimes it does come from a place where they're just fundamentally bad people. Yeah, but there's right. also this kind of psychic income, this gratification of saying, I'm going to keep your eyeballs on me. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to tell you about secret stuff like bio labs, because I know the Putin things played out. So I'm going to go to the next thing that's going to keep you tuning in. That's going to yeah. make both of us feel really important. And like we're part of some special club that knows the stuff that the sheeple don't. Every now and then I'll watch Fox for a whole evening because I'm a political scientist. Mm. I want to know what my fellow citizens are watching. So I consider it part of the job, you know? And it's, I think it's nice that you refer to those people as your fellow citizens. That's a very, uh, well, they, that's a, okay, they're, a very generous. There are other voters. Let's put it that way. A, they, yes, they're, they're definitely human beings who live within the same uh, geogra yes, and they the, vote. The geographical confines of the United States. And, they vote. and, yes, and I just true. find myself saying this whole thing, by the time you're done with four hours of primetime Fox, you are not only angry, you're paranoid. Yeah, I mean, you're right. freaked out and paranoid, but that is right. a symbiotic relationship between the viewer and the host of saying, we're important. We know the real stuff that's interesting. You know, again, what, what kind of poverty of spirit, what kind of emptiness do you have to have to say, if this is how I stay on TV, then that's how I stay on TV. If that is what the kind of the end state of modern America has become, then we, we really went wrong somewhere that millions of people want to do that. So at the heart of the Tucker Carlson, that disinformation story, which is the claim that pumped out by Russian media in the classic fashion, you know, first in social, then eventually it makes its way, gradually migrates towards the mainstream, and then eventually gets propounded by Tucker Carlson. This notion that there are bioweapons and chemical weapons in Ukraine, and they're somehow they're either Ukrainian or they're American, or somehow it's all, we're all part of it, right? That conspiracy theory. He enunciates it. It's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous thing. It's useful idiot talk. 
and you're doing the bidding of the Kremlin that the Kremlin puts out a memo that basically says, hey, we got to get Tucker more on our air. <laughs> and you see Tucker on RT all the time now because they love Tucker on them. He's literally, it's like they pump the disinformation and out, they get America's most watched cable host to repeat it on air, and then they take his audio and they put it back. Tucker's not an idiot. He sees what's going on here, right? Of course. But what that game is about, Tom, is in addition to all the fucked upness of the Russian disinformation and the corruptness of Tucker Carlson and the traitorousness, I would say, the seditious kind of impulse of Tucker Carlson and his cohort is Vladimir Putin has a game here. He wants to play so discord in the United States, but also more particularly right now, we all think this is the pretext for launching a chemical attacks. And it leads us into that discussion of like what comes next, where, you know, everybody's waiting for the chemical attacks to potentially start not waiting for it, but you know what I mean? Fearing that that's where we're going to go. And of course there's a nuclear discussion, which you raised earlier. These are the things where, although we're not drawing red lines right now, these are the things that risk the thing everyone's worried about and that Biden's trying to keep from happening. We end up going up the escalation ladder and it becomes irresistible because either and I, there's obviously a possibility of accidents, but some provocation, right. either accidental or on purpose. And I guess I want you to assess, you know, this is a master's thesis or a PhD thesis, but just at the moment, assess like where you think we are on that. How likely do you think either chemical or nuclear will come into play? How much should we be fearful that those are plausible scenarios. I know they're different scenarios, but I want you to speak to both of them. Yeah, the I think the nuclear scenario is a lot lower. Yeah. Um, that's orders of magnitude. Thank, thank God. Thank yeah, God. Thank I, you because remember that every foreign policy begins with a decision by somebody inside a capital. So Putin is not, for all the joking we do about it, he's not Blofeld. He doesn't have a row of buttons and one says, you know, chemical and then nuclear and then, you know, right. the rabid bats or whatever it is. And I think inside the Kremlin even with his grip on the Kremlin the way it is now, talking about nuclear weapons is going to produce a different dynamic. I mean, I'm maybe I'm saying that more as a prayer and a hope, but I, I still think that's true. The interesting thing about, interesting, I shouldn't say this so dispassionately, the terrifying thing, the horrible thing about thinking about a chemical scenario is that these become more likely the worse Putin does, if that makes sense. Right. That he feels cornered. cornered. He feels like he has nothing to lose. Right. That actually what would have been far safer is if somehow the, and I don't, this is one of those things where a clip taken out of context. He would be probably less dangerous if he thought he were doing better on the battlefield. Right. Yeah. That's the way I yeah. would put it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So now think about how much damage he's done. And there may be moments if he has a soul, it's had to have had a dark night already. He's had to think, okay, right. all this globalized stuff that I thought was all bullshit and that I could just divide nations, this globalized economy and international institutions pretty much turned out the lights on the Russian economy in about 96 hours, which is amazing. Right. Yeah. NATO, that I hate with a passion, I am now the patron saint of a reunified NATO that one day could include Finland or Sweden, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like yeah. if we all get through this thing, NATO is going to have like a, our founder portrait of Vladimir Putin sitting in Brussels because he did this to himself. Right. He has revitalized the notion that liberal democracy is something worth dying for and fighting for and dying for. So, you know, there, there may come a point where he says, 
What can I do that so scrambles the status quo and freaks everyone out to kind of end this minor era of good feeling, you know, with Zelensky on TikToks and yeah. talking to the Congress and Biden calling me a war criminal. Maybe I need to do something so atrocious that 30 countries have to go into a, a huddle and say, how willing are we really to go to war against this guy? I think part of it is a Putin would love to say to the Russian people, see, it was always about NATO. I warned you. I told you that this was what it was about. And then his hope would be that at the first real sign of trouble, NATO fractures. And then he comes out right. of it. He partitions Ukraine. NATO is in disarray. Right. He's gotten away with being the Assad of, of Europe and lives to fight another day. And by having proven that NATO's a paper tiger, man, I hated even spinning out this scenario because it's so awful. But, you know, you have to think about scenarios like that. Again, I'm hoping that if right. he says, let's use chemicals, somebody in Moscow says, wait a minute. First of all, our guys are there. The wind blows, you know, yeah. and also that... What happened to that whole thing? These are our people. These are our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be liberating them. Yeah. I guess, you know, it sucks to be the, the most powerful country on earth. It always has, in a way, because this thing I referred to earlier, the moral clarity of Zelensky and the clarity of the objectives and demands, the moral clarity of a different shade in, of Putin and you're Joe Biden and you're constantly balancing acts, the United States in general, you're constantly balancing equities and balancing. And you're going to have to, in the end, if you want the bloodshot to decide to stop and you and avoid nuclear war, you have to say no to a lot of things that aren't fun to say no to. And you're going to have to make a bunch of compromises that suck. And they're called compromises for a reason. They're not satisfying outcomes, but it is like the burden of right. this, right? And I think you've made this point on Twitter, which is the burden of being, whether you like it or not, the world's policeman, or at least the captain of the precinct, if you've got a full precinct. And of being the president. Because, you know, you raised the point earlier, yes. John, when you said, you know, even Democrats in Congress, you know, I worked on the legislative side. It's easy for legislators to say, you know what they ought to do? You know what the president ought to do? They don't have to give the order. Yeah. And yeah. there's a story in the years I taught at the War College. We talk about this moment in late 65 when the Joint Chiefs went to LBJ and they said, well, you know, Mr. President, if you're going to do this thing with the Vietnamese, you're going to have to really get in there. You're going to have to bomb Hanoi and you're going to have to do all this. Of course, Johnson at that point was still in the, oh, we seek no wider war mode. And apparently, right. and this was a Marine general who wrote this as a memoir later, and people dispute whether this is apocryphal or not. But I think it was General Cooper who said, LBJ exploded basically saying, you cannot imagine the responsibility I have here. You know, you can right. recommend this stuff all day long. Right. And, and he went to each of these generals and said, what would you do? And, the, and each of these generals said, sir, I'm not the president. And, you know, that was basically the point. Right. So to be the president, and I do not say this as a partisan, whether you're Donald Trump having to decide to strike Syrian airfields or Barack Obama in Libya or George Bush in Iraq, to be the president is to make decisions that no other person on earth can make and you right. have to take responsibility yeah. for something bigger than the situation you're in at that moment because you are not just the custodian. It was stirring when Zelensky said, I want you to be the president of the world. I want you to be the president for peace. Well, being president of the world carries a lot of freight with it and requires making some yeah. pretty ugly decisions at some point. You know, Putin never invades Ukraine if he doesn't have nuclear weapons, right? The reality is that the nuclear threat has been central to a lot of his strategy. The one thing that is genuinely out there, right? I mean, all the things he talks about nuclear all the time and people say he's posturing or maybe people don't think he's posturing or people have different interpretations. No one really knows the fucking thing about Putin, but he raises a lot. 
And it's the sort of Damocles that's hanging above. When Lavrov says, we see those truck convoys coming in, you know, we might have to do something. And if we do that, they better not come and start a full-scale war with us. You know why they better not start a full-scale war with us? Because we know NATO would kick the shit out of us. Mm-hmm. Bob, but we've got those we've got those tactical nukes, and we've got those battlefield nukes, and we've got some ICBMs still, I guess. I don't know if they, those even exist anymore. We, we said this to them. Yes. Back during the Cold War. We said, look, if you invade, right. you're going to win. And you understand that has consequences, right? <laughs> yes, right. So, I mean, that sort of gets to the question, which is, Do you not think that like if you're Iran or other states in the proliferation game that you're looking at this and going, "Ah, man, it turns out the nuclear weapons are pretty. I mean, I know countries already know that there's power in nuclear weapons, but that this is an illustration for a lot of potential nuclear powers to like, yeah, it's good. The value of them has risen in some ways by looking at what's happening here. Let me make two quick points about nuclear weapons. This is the problem. You're talking about escalation. This is why I keep coming back to the 1914 thing. You asked if Putin would have invaded Ukraine without nuclear weapons. He might have, because the mistake and the thing that can lead you into a terrible nuclear crisis is that he thought it would be over already. So he might have said, hey, I don't need nuclear weapons. I'm just going to seize Ukraine and then it's done. Look, Britain's nuclear weapons did not stop the Argentinians from trying to jump into the Falklands and say, oh, now they're the Malvinas, it's over. And they didn't think that Britain would nuke them. But on the other hand, they thought, yeah, you can mess with a nuclear power as long as you do it quickly and bring it to a quick conclusion. The other problem, though, about nuclear weapons is the problem, and I I teach this now in my other teaching gigs about asymmetrical deterrence. It's a very political science-y term, but you know, we drew a lot of the wrong lessons from the Cold War. Mm -hmm. What kept the peace in the Cold War? We said, if World War III comes, it's gonna be completely symmetrical balancing of interest. Like Lenin said in 1922, a funeral dirge will be sung either over capitalism or socialism. And we knew that if we went into it, it was for all the marbles. They were totally invested. We were all in. What happens if there's an asymmetry of interest? What happens if the North Koreans say, look, for this thing that we've done that you don't like, whatever it is, whether they've menaced South Korea, for us, it's existential. For you, it's a big problem. For the Iranians, for us, it's existential. For you, it's a foreign policy problem. What happens when these small nuclear powers say, listen, we don't need a thousand weapons to deter the United States. All we need is one or two or three, because no matter what it is, it's not worth losing Miami or Seattle or whatever we can hit. I think that is a stupid calculation to make because the one thing that authoritarian systems don't understand about democracies is that we push away and push away and push away. And then when we decide to fight, we are awful. I mean, the Japanese learned this the hard way. The Germans learned it the hard way. And so I think that the Iranians and the North Koreans may be drawing the wrong lesson about that. But it is at least, I don't want to use the term like rational, but it is understandable that they would say, look, the Americans aren't going to risk a nuclear strike from us because the thing that's at issue is vastly more important to us than it possibly could be to them. And I think Putin's thinking that right now. I think Putin's saying... I, don't, I just don't think Ukraine is worth World War Three to you. We're going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Tom Nichols on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Tom Nichols for the last part of this two-part episode of Hell and High Water. I'm going to play one last piece of sound and then it's going to lead to one question because I want to come back to to the man of the moment, the person I really think is, you know, almost endlessly fascinating is Zelensky. And this is a dubbed piece of video from when he did this interview with Lester Holt last week. 
where he talks about World War III. Lester Holt asks him, do you think that we're headed for World War III? And this is Zelensky's answer. It may have already started. It's very hard to say. And we've seen this 80 years ago when the Second World War has started. And there were similar tragedies in the history. Nobody would be able to predict when the full-scale war would start and how it will end. Now we have different technologies, nuclear weapons. In this case, we have the whole civilization at stake. So that's Zelensky asked the question. It's a question on everybody's mind, Tom. And I found myself saying it on the circus the other day. I was like, you know, is World War III coming or are we already in it? We just don't know it. And, you know, that's the story. Right. More of World War I than World War II. That the, the war started before people realized that it were actually in it at that point, right? right? And so I ask, I guess, conjoined concluding questions, one of which is, what you think about that. I mean, the stakes are gargantuan. We, we all recognize that these, these, these stakes are large, maybe larger for Western Europe and for Europe than they are for the United States right now, but they're global and they're epochal. But is it possible that we are actually in the middle of a thing that will be written about historically as the beginning of World War III? And as we watch it now, it's hard to say what will happen in the future, but I want you to talk about Zelensky as a, a world historical figure. Do you think it, he really merits in the end the kinds of rhetoric that's being heaped upon him? I do, but I'm curious whether you think he's someone who really is. His extraordinariness is, I mean, almost unprecedented in my lifetime, actually. Take the second question first and say, most of the people that have risen to that kind of moment of heroism, people like Churchill and others, they had a lifetime of preparing for it. You know, they were in government. They had been through wars. I think what's most astonishing about Zelensky is this gigantic war, whether we call it World War III or not, I'll get to it in a second, but this gigantic war breaks out and it's almost like he just walked down the street and said, hey, random guy. Let's see how you do. You know, and it turns out the guy is Churchillian, that he somehow is able to do this. And I think that does, I think it says something really great about Zelensky and about kind of the human spirit that you don't need to spend a lifetime being Winston Churchill or being Dwight Eisenhower to prepare for the presidency or for D-Day, that there is something in the human spirit that recognizes the importance of the moment. And maybe that'll be the thing that we remember long in the future, God willing, that things work out okay, you know, that we recognize about Zelensky. Is there a way he can fuck it up? Yeah, sure. I mean, if he, if he gets killed, he's a martyr and will be valorized forever. If he keeps doing what he's doing, he will also be heroic and valorized. But is there something he could do, a deal he could make, the kind of deal that we've been talking about, like to save his people's lives, many people, thousands of lives, he goes to the negotiating table with Putin and, and he cuts a deal to partition Ukraine, makes a bunch of nasty, ugly, necessary compromises. Is his public image in some way? Uh, no. I think, you know, when you said, is there a way he could fuck it up? And I think, yeah, the answer to that is yes, but not by making a deal. I don't think there's anybody in the world that would blame Zelensky for making any deal he has to make to put a stop to, you know, this barbarism. And if there is anybody out there who'd criticize him for it, shame on you. The only time I think he gets close to problems is when he starts lashing out at the United States or at NATO allies, even as the war was building up. And then in the first weeks, every now and then he'd lash out and say, well, you know, you don't care about us and you, you're willing to just kind of, you know, put us on the, it's like, come on, man. I, I feel like I'm doing Biden here. Come on, man. Yeah. And I don't criticize him for any of that because I'm not in a bunker trying to stay alive against a right. Russian onslaught. Sure. But if you're asking, where do I think things could go wrong? Is if you start kind of lashing out at your allies and saying, listen, um, you know, 
the fact that you're not coming in here and kind of suicidally triggering yeah. the Holocaust is pissing me off, that doesn't really play well. And it's worth saying that, you know, there was a lot of concern among a lot of people that when he came, when he did a speech to Congress, that he would put pressure on the Biden administration. He's going to ask for a no-fly zone, and they're going to be, you know, the pressure's going to be, they're going to have to deal with the pressure, the moral clarity of Zelensky. And then he, he did the political thing, the savvy political thing, which was close the skies, not in a fly zone. Right. Different matter. Close the skies, which gives the Biden administration all kinds of maneuvering. It was a smart, savvy political play. Don't want to try to use my most important ally. I don't want to put Joe Biden in a bind. I need that guy. Right. And that, again, speaks to, to Zelensky's, in addition to his incredible uh, communication skills. And, and that there are people who are advising him who understand, understand the it. States. Yes, totally. So now, get me to the, to the World War III question and we'll let you get out of here. Well, I'll tell you, the answer is either going to send everybody, you're going to say, yes, we are actually in World War III now and I'm going to have to go kill myself, or you're going to have to show us a way out of the dark. You know, um, it's become a thing on Twitter where people ask me if it's okay to panic now. And the answer is no. So no panicking yet. I'll be the first to let you know. Yeah. But um, no, I don't like the talking point that we're already in World War III. And I think it was Barry McCaffrey. I hope I'm not misattributing this, but I think it was Barry McCaffrey who was asked that question. He said, you'll know you're not in World War III if World War III breaks out and you're going to see just how different it really is. This notion, well, World War III has already begun. Yes, I understand that President Zelensky blowing up Russian tanks and dealing with Russian bombers. That's, again, I can't criticize him for saying that. But for Americans, if you think we're in World War III, you're sitting around having a beer, you're watching this on cable TV. If World War III happens, you're going to know it. And I don't just mean in terms of a nuclear war. I mean, you will have the largest military alliance in history fighting a gigantic country that covers 11 time zones that will spread from the Atlantic to the Pacific on land and sea and air. And people have to remember that. I think we've been a unipolar power so long. So, well, World War III, that's just started. Well, we're in it and let's kick some ass. I'm sorry, but if World War III starts, you will be watching the news every night about what kind of actions are we fighting in the Pacific? Which countries are under attack around Ukraine? There's four NATO countries that border Ukraine. I have no doubt, John, that as you say, you know, we would, and I took a lot of static for saying this five or six years ago when I said, if Putin ever tries to trigger a conventional war with NATO, he will lose. But this notion that, well, it's already happening. The rest of the world right now is at peace. There is a monstrous atrocity and a crime against humanity happening in, in Ukraine. But the notion that this is just kind of the opening shot of World War III, I think is, again, kind of an unserious approach to what World War III would really look like. What you said, though, and I have to leave people with some residual anxiety, so I guess I'll say, if World War III does finally break out, God forbid, from all of this. Yeah, I think you could call it the the spring 2022 crisis right. sure. that eventually led down the line to this. But I think people really need to be careful about saying, well, it's already World War III, because the next thing that comes from that is a call to action to say, well, we're already in World War III, so we might as well just start flying the missions and blowing stuff up and doing all the things that you would do as a country at war. And I think that is really uh, precipitous and unwise right now. So my friend Tom Nichols comes on, he provides us with brilliance and insight and, and good humor, and, and he takes a metric ton of shit from me for his various transgressions against good taste when it comes to music. You can't say enough times that Tom is a brilliant guy. You also can't say enough times that, like all of us, it's always a good reminder that we're all fallible. Back in December of just last year, when you were writing about Zelensky in the Atlantic, World War III was the question mark for the Atlantic. And there was a moment where you were talking about Zelensky and kind of how he seemed like he was in over his head, like a lot of people thought. A lot of people thought yeah, it. I did. There was, a, there was a little speculative thing in there where you, the, the favorite sentence of the piece. 
kind of imagining what might happen if there was an invasion from Russia. You say, out of options, with the morgues filling up and his military in retreat, Zelensky resigns or is hounded out of office. Mm -hmm. And I think what we can now say is that it proves that like even the most brilliant men with the most questionable taste in music don't get everything right all the time. So if there's things yeah. that Tom said today that you disagree with or that you think are too pessimistic, you can just be like, yeah, Tom Nichols, he's full of shit. He gets all kinds of important <laughs> stuff wrong all the time. Uh, I wouldn't encourage that, but a man who writes as much as you do and talks as much as you do about these complicated subjects, it's helpful for those lesser mortals of us to know that you're fallible too. That's why I cling to the music thing, Tom, because it's like, well, you've got such a big brain. You're so smart about everything. I'm like, thank God there's one thing that I'm better at than him. You know, I, I, when, we're talking about, when we're talking about music, I thought of that, and I'm glad you reminded me of this because the analogy I thought of is, you know, for a lot of people, like I happen to like escargot, right? I really like French cuisine. I love escargot. There are people that would not touch escargot. And if you gave them a, a Big Mac, they will eat it every time instead of touch that plate of escargot. I personally think that's nuts. Yeah. And again, another place where you're just fakakta because like eating a snail as opposed to a Big Mac, See what's what wrong I mean? with you, man? What's you're, wrong with you? I'm sorry, John, but if you had a more educated palate, you would understand this. Oh, I've been waiting all day to say that. The classic thing of the snob, which is like, I know it tastes like shit, but it's just because your palate's not a bowl. Well, that's I'm how like, I think about when you um, talk to me about Velvet Underground. It's like, I think this is terrible music, but you seem to think it's important. <laughs> but the I thing just, about getting stuff wrong, and I think, you know, that that is a lesson in humility for everybody. I, I mean, I will actually add to that stuff I got wrong. I could never have predicted the astonishing underperformance of, yeah. you know, the Russian Air Forces. I mean, if you had said to me, and I think most of us who, who follow Russian military, developments if you had said could they be this bad you'd be like yeah i guess on their worst day if everything went wrong in the same 24 hours i could never have imagined four straight weeks of staggering military incompetence they still you know russian tanks going down a closed street and it's like how many times are you guys going to do this before you realize this is bad yes um so yeah i guess i made the same mistake putin did i thought they're going to invade um there's going to be huge casualties zelensky's not going to be able to cope with that the russian army's going to do what the russian army does and, and it would be over so this is one of the reasons i think most of us ought to stay away from the prediction game but it's also when something like this happens you, it's um it's a temptation we all we all give into on the scale of the cosmically and shockingly bad, we have right at the top with a bullet, the performance of the Russian military, followed by, at number two, Tom Nichols's tweet about the goodbye girl in March of 2020. I'll accept and, that. And these are like, it's like a fair my, it, those are the things of 2022, the things we'll remember as like the worst shockingly bad things that we've <laughs> encountered. All right, Tom, thank you for doing this. And it was a delight. My pleasure, John. It was great hanging with you. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Tom Nichols for being here for this special two-part episode. If you like part one and part two, or if you like just part one or just part two, if you liked any part of this two-part episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Pierre Bienname engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender, our post producer. And the one and only, the great and the good, Marshall Eisen, he's our executive producer. 